From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. Think about sports. Great coaching is fundamental other focus. It is fundamentally and foundationally about servant leadership. If, if it's not, when people leave, they, they'll remember yeah, either, hey, I want to track that person down, I want to give them a hug. They foundationally helped me, they cared about me, or man, that person was out for themselves. Hi folks, Justin Schreiber here. Today I'm joined by Brian McCarthy, Chief Revenue Officer at Rubrik. Brian has built a big following among great sales executives in tech, thanks to his irrepressible desire to make the people on his team shine. He's also developed one of the most refined sales playbooks in the business. We'll get into that, but first I wanted to chat about Brian's childhood. He took some big hits early in life, the kinds of hits that can lead to a lifetime of struggle. Somehow though, Brian turned those experiences into incredible strengths that have shaped who he is as a sales executive, as a leader, and as a person. Let's jump into the conversation. So I thought it was interesting. One of the things that we do to record these podcasts in the COVID era is we're actually stringing together. It's like popsicle sticks and bubblegum stringing together the technology. I noticed that you pulled out your phone to record a voice memo and a trip down memory lane. Can you tell us who you saw on that voice memo? Yeah, it was super funny. You know, I look at, I, I pull up the voice memo and November 9, 2017, 22 minute voice memo with Jeremy Duggan <laughs> on our, around why the leading indicators. So I guess the, the two of us were having a conversation and uh, rather than jotting down a lot of notes, I, I recorded it. How funny is that? And of course, I had the great opportunity to listen in on his podcast earlier and it's uh, pretty appropriate for some of the topics that we're discussing here today. Absolutely, it's all in the family. This topic of leading indicators is also a key theme that comes up I know that in this particular podcast, we're going to spend a good bit of time on that because you've really refined that notion and how you apply it to the sales organization. Before we go there, though, Brian, you have a fascinating childhood, and I'd love to spend a little bit of time just talking a little bit about some of the influences, particularly your mom and your dad, because I know they're they're part of your DNA, and we'll connect that those experiences that you had to some of the things that you do today as a leader. So maybe we start off, tell me a little bit about what it was like growing up in your household and a little bit about your mom and dad. Yeah, for sure. It all does start there, probably for everybody. You can teach, you can inspire, you can coach, but you can't undo 20 years of bad parenting. And so, so many of people's professional career is shaped in a lot of ways from the foundation they have growing up or some of the challenges they overcame. I was super blessed, actually, growing up. Very, very fortunate. I grew up surrounded by a lot of love. I was one of 12 children, which is to say my parents loved each other a lot. <laughs> I'm number 10 of 12, so I had uh, a lot of older brothers and sisters looking out for me, but also some great people to model my life after. And nobody 
better than my mom and dad, actually, who uh, really made a huge impact on me. A lot of values, uh, the values and, and characteristics that I think when I look back professionally, which helped really differentiate me early as, a, as just a young, hungry kid in the workforce was really the foundation that was laid from my parents. So I talk a bit about growing up in the McCarthy household a lot because my dad passed away when I was young. I was only six years old. He died at 51 of uh, colon cancer. And like many families, Justin, like when you have tragedy that strikes, one of two things happens, right? Like either it's a big fissure and everybody kind of goes their own way, or it's this rally cry where everybody comes together. And we were very blessed to be the, the, the latter and have everybody really pull together. You know, my mom was widowed with a bunch of kids, but um, we had a great foundation. My dad left a great legacy rooted in really in family, in love, as well as the value of hard work. And I'll never forget, you know, one story in particular that kind of exemplifies, you know, that legacy more than more than most of them. He worked his towel off, right? Like he was a janitor uh, at our local power school, how we, how we were able to kind of get educated. And then he worked on the docks unloading ships. And he also was a taxi cab driver. He worked his, worked his butt off. To say we were uh, a lower income family would be a stretch. I'm always just conscientious to talk, hey, we were, we were in poverty. We were in American poverty, which sometimes is a different thing than some of the poverty around the world that I've seen you know, in missions throughout my life. But we certainly were hard pressed and, uh, and every dime counted. But my dad showed us, you know, the value of work and, and had a great care for it, um, had a lot of respect for it. And I'll never forget when he uh, he took me to to work with him at Immaculate Conception in Jenkintown. When I was young, I was probably five. He would just getting diagnosed with cancer and he was mopping the floor and he looked at me and he said, hey, kid, you see this floor? You could eat off this floor. And I said, yeah, pop. That's a really well mopped floor. He said, you know why, Brian? I said, no, Pop. Why is it such a well mopped floor? He said, because Jim McCarthy mopped this floor. And he looked at me and he said, Brian, no matter what you do in your life, whether you're a fighter, because we all we all grew up boxing first, <laughs> you know, or you're a doctor or you're a lawyer or you're a janitor. Remember, always to be willing to put your name on your work. And then he went on to say, you know, I don't I don't have much to give you. But what I give you is a good name that I'm proud of. If you have that integrity and character, you're a wealthy man. You know, there was that appreciation from a young age of work and, and, and really what it meant to put your name on something that I saw lived out from my brothers and sisters, as well as that, you know, and my mom and just that commitment that work was a gift, it wasn't a burden. It was an opportunity. It was a way out, <laughs> you know, so it was a way out of uh, current circumstances. So that was a bit of the foundation. The second would be just a deep sense of security. May seem odd when you think like, OK, not a lot of money. Dad died really young. How do you consider that a secure upbringing? I tell people the story like I remember sitting on the front porch with my mom. First time I saw like a sheriff sale thing on our front door which, you know, just we were losing our house. 
I just remember not being worried at all. And and that came from like just a sense of security that uh, my mom would always talk about, hey, God will provide, we'll be all right. We always get through everything. And it was a sense of calm and faithfulness and uh, positive hope and just reinforcing. And I got this all the time from my mom, just reinforcing that I was worth it and I was loved, I was worthwhile. I struggled a bit at school right after my dad died first grade in between second grade where they thought I had dyslexia. They actually sent me to a different school and I, and I struggled with that. My mom always made me feel though, and my brothers and sisters, they said love that community that I was worthwhile and that I had a lot of value. And so I had this sense of security and self-confidence that didn't come from being excellent at one thing or another. It really just came foundational like to who I was. And I do think that security and, and self-confidence also was a real differentiator professionally for me. It allowed me to hire people that are better than me. It allowed me to feel like I belonged in the room always. Didn't have a lot of insecurity ever. I was blessed with that. And so I do think those two elements, that, that sense of security and that sense of love of work, appreciation for it, were really a foundation for me professionally. As I think about your identity and, and what your identity is built on, it's not built on things. If anything, you didn't have things growing up, so you had to build it you know, on other factors like, like the relationships in your life, the stable relationships, like your own ability to work hard. And from a sales perspective, I see how that can be such an asset because you're able to decouple yourself from outcomes like, did I close the deal? and focus on some of those less tangible, but ultimately more enduring aspects of your life. Yeah, absolutely. Think about like my first gig. I sold insurance through college actually, at Northwestern Mutual. And that was the first place I figured out, like just yeah, dial for dollars, make a lot of calls. And then I got a break and I got a break through my brother-in-law, Rich Christie, who you know has been a, um, one of the best enterprise software sellers I know. He's over at MuleSoft now. But he knew someone got me an interview. I was 21 years old. I, I finished college early purely because I was worried that I would lose my my bride, who I, who I fell in love with freshman year. She was an older woman. She loves when I tell people that. She was a whole five months older, but she was a grade ahead of me. And I remind her for every life event, she's been a year older than me. We got married when I was 21. I worked to get through uh, university in three years because I was worried if she left school without me, I would lose her. So I, uh, I graduated with her. And right after school at a young age of 21, my brother, Rich, got me an interview over a small British software company called CaseWise. I got a break to be able to start selling software as a kid, 21 years old, quota carrying role as an inside sales rep and kind of skipped some of the steps, right, that that you have to go through. But I'll never forget 90 days in, I called Rich up and I just said, hey, man, I don't know if this is normal, but uh, I think I figured out how to be top on the on the list every month. And he laughed. And I remember him saying, hey, man, sometimes it, 90% of success is just showing up ready to work. So many folks don't show up prepared to work. I said, this is what I figured out. I figured out after 90 days that if I made 40 phone calls every day, I would get a hold of 10 people. And if I got a hold of 10 people, I could book three meetings. 
And for every three meetings, I would close one deal. So understanding those kind of metrics enabled me to control the outputs. Being able to take that approach of like, hey, I know how I became successful. I know the, the inputs. So it enabled me to be a teacher you know, of what it would take to be you know, excellent as a rep, as a professional. So you had that insight very early in your career and you continue to develop that. At one point you landed at AppD. AppD is known for the disciplined approach they take to selling and also their expert use of leading indicators. Tell me a little bit about what it was like to work at AppD and some of the things that you took away from that experience. Yeah, well, first thing is, you know, I actually went to App Dynamics purely for the purpose of I was intrigued. You know, certainly, obviously, high growth company, make some money, they just went and got acquired. All that's good. But the real value of that experience was the people there and the discipline. And I had heard a lot about folks like Dolly and Jeremy Duggan. I knew Scott Davis there. So it was just some really great sales leaders. But for me, it was all about learning. It's like, hey, this is great. I had wild success as a, as a young guy. I was 36, you know, when, when I was named president. And so it was like, what's next? You know, what, what else can I digest? How can I get better? And App Dynamics provided a great learning environment for me personally. And that's, that's so funny that the start of this call was looking at that Jeremy Duggan uh, conversation. Because what I found at App Dynamics was like, I was doing pretty much all, all of the same approach. And I would instill a lot of that, those same disciplines into the sales teams and organizations that I was leading. But they formalized it into a process that was just a, a thing of um, a mixture of art and science that was beautiful. And so it felt like home, you know, when I landed there, it was like, ah, look, this is where all the smart people are hanging out. Uh, so it was it was um, it was a great experience. I learned a ton uh, to basically put names and process to a lot of what was unconsciously competent in my world and what I was teaching. And, and I and I use that. I, I don't know where I where I first heard these terms. But it's, it's super important to think about it this way. It might have been a conversation I had with Scott Davis, actually. But the idea of being consciously competent is the journey of coaching and enablement. We have uh, when, when you go look at, at teams and so many of people that you recruit and build around, there's a whole lot of people that are unconsciously incompetent. <laughs> I don't mean that to be snarky. It's just true. They don't even know what they don't know. Right. And that's OK. I prefer not to recruit those people, though. Uh, what I prefer, I, I don't mind at all people that are consciously incompetent. They're beautiful. That's a beautiful place to be. Someone that knows they don't know everything, that knows that they have an opportunity to grow, growth mindset that wants to learn and wants to expand. And it's precisely the ability to be a great teacher and coach to take somebody on a journey from being uh, consciously incompetent to consciously competent. And, and then there's this whole other breed uh, that you have in a lot of companies, a small group uh, of people, but they're like, they're the, like the supernaturals. <laughs> yeah, they are just so good. But often they may not know why they're so good. <laughs> 
And they have this thing, which I would would call, and, uh, and I've heard before, unconsciously competent. They do all the same things. They do it innate. They have this natural sense to do it. But taking them and seeing them develop to be consciously competent, to understand what it is that they're doing innately so that they can replicate it. Because until you become consciously competent, until you really know why you're getting those outcomes, what are the inputs, what do you have to do? You can't coach, you can't develop, you can't get a multiplication of yourself and uh, multiplying effect of, uh, of, of those skills. And so really, I think the beauty and the brilliance of App Dynamics was owning the consciously competent journey helping people understand what it was they needed to do so that they could be wildly successful, even people that were wildly successful and didn't know why. That's Brian McCarthy, Chief Revenue Officer at Rubrik. When we come back, Brian will break down his formula for building a high-performance sales organization. It's the byproduct of years of frontline experience and an uncanny ability to zero in on the needle-moving behaviors that transform sales teams into selling powerhouses. Stay with us. I'm Justin Schreiber, and you're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing. Welcome back. Today, I'm joined by Brian McCarthy, Chief Revenue Officer at Rubrik. Sales leaders often run on instinct when it comes to building and managing their organizations, but not Brian. He's built an engine fueled as much by hard data as it is by vision and inspirational leadership. What makes his approach so compelling is that he's lived every facet of it, first as a rep, then a frontline sales manager and a sales executive. Today, as CRO, he can look any member of his organization in the eye and say, trust me, it's gonna work. Let's jump back into the conversation to learn more about where that conviction came from. So let's get into that in a little bit more detail at AppD and then subsequently the work that you're doing at ThoughtSpot. You've developed a highly refined system for uh, or, or, or a sales process and methodology. Can you break down the metrics that you're focused on, the process that you use, the way that you're able at scale to replicate the best kind of selling? Yeah. So look, like most great things, a lot of process, qualification, methodology. If there's great things out there, you reuse, right? A, lo- a lot of it. So, so it's about tweaking for your organization less than you know, recreating the wheel. So we, we do a lot of things that other great companies do just around like qualification. We use a version of MedPick to help qualify, to really spend the right amount of time on winnable opportunities. We've uh, leveraged the basic skill sets uh, around why are we working <laughs> this opportunity? Uh, leveraging something called the three whys, something that uh, you know really put name around when I was at AppD. Uh, why why we would do anything, why thought spot, and why now? As just a great way to help reps spend time on winnable opportunities again. Like, it, hey, you know, the very foundation of our sales process is getting to a why anything. Before something can even get to stage one, we need to be able to, you know, identify 
a positive, a quantifiable positive business outcome. And one in particular that would justify an average spend for us, right? It's common sense. Like, hey, if I'm working with a cut with a, a prospect, do they have a problem that's quantifiably big enough to solve that they would spend enough money for an average deal for us to solve it? If they don't, then we're we're wasting our time, but they're wasting their time. We're not doing any any favors for them. So really it's about like taking them through this journey of why would they do anything? What is the quantifiable positive business outcome for that why anything? Going down why thought spot, answering that question, like what are the you know required capabilities? What are the 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 technological needs to deliver that why anything? Uh, that positive business outcome. And then how does ThoughtSpot do it uniquely? And then why now is really just taking that PB, you know, positive business outcome, that why anything and divide it by time, you know, the, the, the time loss. And it becomes a, a very compelling, you know, living, breathing document that's not for us internally. It's really for our customer to help our customer understand the problems that they're solving and justify the time that our customer is spending with us. You know, there's the sales process, which is going through, you know, leveraging this three whys, going through uh, proof of value, documenting that value through a business value assessment. You know, each of these stages, developing champions that help us to help us help them basically execute the value that we've documented in a BVA. So really, it's about. Our sales process is about winning stages. It's not about winning deals. It's about helping the customer get through each stage successfully. And that stage is rooted in value for the customer. That it, it's, it's a very jointly mutual process. If the customer is not getting value, we don't have any business wasting their time. And so we can both mutually say, hey, this is not, this doesn't make sense. We can walk away and they can walk away. And what keeps us together through that process is rooted in a fundamental belief that we both have, that we can deliver real fundamental value for them, either by improving the numerator, helping them drive margin revenue or cost out around the denominator. Then there's another area, less, I wouldn't call it sales process. I wouldn't call medic sales process around qualification, helping us help our customers is what I was talking about before. What I would say around leading indicators is all this really is, is what are the inputs that will ensure you're successful for your team? It's what are the foundational things that that if you're doing these things, I can virtually guarantee that you're going to be successful on the outlet on the uh, other side. And the leading indicators are nothing about inspection. It's really not. Now, I, I have seen some organizations make some mistakes and try to use them as a as a, a whipping, you know, mechanism like, hey, do more, call more. It's actually has nothing to do with that. You know, when we recruit people in to the business, they typically want to be part of the business for a couple of reasons. One, they want to grow professionally and personally. Two, they obviously want to make money. They want to be successful. They have goals that they want to meet. And three, and usually the kind of people we try to hire, want to make an impact on their customers and their partners. 
Uh, th th those three things are, are like kind of fundamental to the characteristics that, and the personas that we go recruit. And so the leading indicators really give us insight into how to help them achieve those goals. We are focused on helping them grow to get better, to ensure that their time is spent in the right areas so that they can have the best chance at hitting their goals and making the kind of money they want and make being able to deliver the right amount of value to their customers that they want to make. And so it's not about yelling at a scoreboard at all. It's about where in the journey can we dig in and provide coaching and help, as I talked about before, about helping them get to that consciously competent area. And that leadership is all about service. It's about servant leadership. It's a, it, it's not, I'm not coaching you to help me. I'm really coaching and developing because I want to help you. And so the one thing that I think companies have gotten wrong about this a lot, unfortunately, is they're missing the foundational ingredient to make coaching successful. And I did a podcast with uh, our CEO, Sadish, on love, <laughs> uh, which is a, you know, heady topic. But I, I really actually believe the foundational element to good coaching is, is ensuring that the frequency of both people is tuned in. You know, like if you send out a frequency and you're sending out, you know, a message, but the, the receiver isn't tuned into the same frequency, they don't hear it. And it's no different in coaching. If there isn't a foundation between the coach and the person being coached or developed that whatever message is coming out, if it's not rooted in love, if it's not rooted in a fundamental belief that this person cares about me, this person cares about what I want, this person cares about me personally, professionally, they care about my hopes, my dreams, what I, what I want to accomplish, well, then it can easily feel like criticizing or telling me, well, I'm not good enough. Or, But if that person has a fun foundational belief that this person talking to me cares about me. They care about the time that I spend. They care about my outcomes. They care about me personally and professionally. They're much more susceptible to listen and digest. And so that's actually the foundation of, of our culture at ThoughtSpot. That's the foundation of everywhere I've been is creating that first foundation of mutual respect and that they know I love them. I care about them and that's, that, that's the culture. And then when you have that, it, the leading indicators then enables you to look at each of those areas of activities and time that's spent. And if it's spent well, we'll get the best outcome. Kind of like I talked about when I was at CaseWise, if I made this many calls and it's that same approach, like all the things that need to be done to help you close revenue and add value to your customer. All those steps, the leading indicators tells us early if we're off on something. And so rather than waiting to coach your reps or your teams on the scoreboard, like, hey, you didn't close enough revenue after the fact. And this is much more around, hey, where can I help you? How can I dig in and help you be successful on the front end? And I really mean this and it's nuanced. It's not, it is not about yelling at the scoreboard. It is not about, hey, you didn't make enough calls. 
Because quite frankly, all these are all professionals. They want to be successful. They want to be great or else they wouldn't be part of the organization. And so it's a matter of you're making the effort to do the hardest thing in the world, which is to book a new business meeting. New business meeting, you know, is a, is a term we use. It means a new route to money. So a new new business could be an existing customer or prospect, but that has a potential champion that has a why anything, you know, quantifiable problem that we're trying to solve for the customer with the customer. And it's so hard to book those. So you're booking them or you're not booking them. And that's the first stage of that leading indicator. And if they're not able to get the 10 NBMs a quarter, the question is, okay, why? I can dig in now and say, all right, you you know, is it your phone? Is it your messaging on the phone? Do you not have the right target personas that you're going after? Do you not have the right accounts and territory? So, so we can really start focusing. It's not just about, you know, saying, hey, you don't have enough. It's how can I make sure that this time that you're spending making calls is efficient and you're getting a, a good return for the effort that you're putting into it? And then let's say they do a really good job. They get 10 people, you know, meetings, but then those meetings don't convert to opportunities. Then you have to say, oh man, the hardest thing in the world is get, you know, these people to meet with you and you're wasting all this time because you're not converting at least 50% of them. Why is that? So then let's start figuring out, like, how do I make sure you're prepared in that first meeting? Are you doing a first meeting prep? Do you really understand their business going in there? Do you understand the value that we're trying to solve? Do you under, you know, are you great at delivering the first meeting deck? Have you done the pre-work necessary to make sure that meeting is of value to, to that prospect that's giving you that time? That's what worth it, right? So it's about coaching at that stage. And then let's say that prospect is excellent at, at you know, converting, but then somewhere in the middle, they get stuck. Then we can say, okay, well, are we setting up our proof of values right? Are we anchoring on it on on the value enough? Are we doing a good enough job at developing champions, helping our prospects believe in the value and eliminating any fears they have to bring in that value to their organization? Are we partnering with them and developing those champions so they so so our job isn't really to sell or prove something to the customer. It's really to develop champions and allow those champions to truly see and understand the quantifiable value for their organization and empower them and enable them to go sell this to their organization. So are we doing a good enough job at that in the middle? And then if you get through the middle, in some rare case, at the end of the sales cycle, you're, you're getting stuck and taking too long of a period to get through negotiation and close, you can start coaching them up on, on that area. Like, hey, you know, have you done the work around documenting the value in a BBA? Do you... Do you have a joint success plan? Does your customer believe in that joint success plan of what it looks like when they get going? So there's all these different areas throughout this process that you can focus in on and to coach and develop. But without that, without each of those steps, you're left, your coaching uh, or development is left to be yelling at the scoreboard after the fact, hey, you know, you didn't do enough. So really, this leading indicator approach is, is absolutely rooted in, I care about you. I want to help you. I want to make sure that you have as efficient process as possible. And we use data, inter, you know, these data and these metrics internally 
it's for us to help you uh, as a rep, not for us to hold you accountable. You hold, people hold themselves accountable. They're professionals. Two things stand out in my mind related to what you shared. First of all, the mentality that you are there to help that rep to achieve what they want to achieve. I think about sports and how well instrumented a professional team is. Literally, they've got every angle on every play, every second of the game. A big part of what they do is watching the game film post facto. And that's an opportunity for the coach and the team to share observations about what happened on the field to make the most minute adjustments so that the next time they step onto the field, they can do it a little bit better. And that happens again and again and again. For whatever reason, I think that we have not been able to embrace that as we need to in sales. And it has turned into more of this surveillance beat the guy up mentality versus, hey, this is your game film and we just want you to be the, the star athlete that you can be. Yeah. Listen, I think that is a brilliant synopsis and very accurate. And again, I really think, think about sports, great coaches, man, the player. I remember when I was in eighth grade, seventh and eighth grade, playing football for a guy named Coach Mike Castagna. This guy cared about me. He cared about instilling in me discipline integrity, accountability, not because he wanted me to be, you know, in the NFL, but he knew this would be foundational for me in my life and would serve me well. He cared about me. I had no doubt that Coach Mike loved me, that he wanted my best. He wanted to impact, you know, impart knowledge and his wisdom and help us become men. And that was important. And how many great coaches, you know, throughout people's childhoods, do they look back and say, if I saw him on the street, I'd give him a hug. He, that person helped me. He or she helped me so much in my life. And then you look back and think about the, the crap coaches that were out there, that were in it for themselves, that were worried about being embarrassed, worried about, you know, them looking bad. Great coaching is fundamentally other focus. It is fundamentally and foundationally about servant leadership. If, if it's not, when people leave, they, they'll remember yeah, either, hey, I want to track that person down. I want to give them a hug. They foundationally helped me. They cared about me. Or man, that person was out for themselves. And so leadership that is out for themselves, which is throughout every sales, unfortunately, fouls, even with the best processes and the best data. Uh, leadership that leverages that data, that process, and that coaching, and as a foundation, builds trust and you know, mutual respect and love. Wherever they go, they will think of, man, you know, that was a time where I really grew, where I grew as a person and as a professional. And so, yeah, I think you're spot on. I think the coaching, I mean, the analogy of sports is is 100% correct, and it it, it is rooted in making sure that the person has ears to hear. And the only way they're going to have ears to hear or want to be coached is if they are not taking offense. They're, they're, they don't have a guard up that's saying, nope, I don't want to take this criticism. I want this. And it's a much more of an openness of, 
I, of course, I can't see everything. Of course, I need an outside perspective. Of course, I need, you know, I'm open because I want to be great. And that goes up and down the chain. At CRL, I'm super open. I'm, I love talking with our advisors. I was talking with Dave Schneider, president of ServiceNow yesterday. We talked just about this, actually. I was saying, I have strong opinions. I think I know what I'm doing. I'm pretty confident. I love invite coaching. I love, hey, help, let me run this by you. What am I not thinking about? And so foundationally, it goes to the profile of the type of people we want to hire, which is growth mindset, people that are curious. Uh, we, we talked about the five C's. I'll, I'll, I'll share, maybe share it another time. I don't know. But like, you know, one of the C's is curiosity. And it's, it's foundational into having a learning and growth mindset. And uh, people that don't, that aren't curious, that don't have a growth mindset, and then you, you pile on if they don't think that you care about them, uh, that's not a great environment for coaching. Since we're on the topic of building a loyal team, you in your career have certainly developed a following and an ability to pull people into the next exciting opportunity that you're exploring. That's a great segue into ThoughtSpot and the way that you got into this particular role and how you approach that role as a new leader. Can you talk a little bit about how you discovered the opportunity in the first place and then how you went about building the team that you've currently got? Yeah, so at AppDynamics, we shared investor at Lightspeed, Ravi and the team. So I knew about ThoughtSpot through uh, that mutual connection. Was not looking at all, actually. So fell in love a bit with uh, Sadish, who's tough not to fall in love with CEO and and Ajit as a you know a founder of the company and you know just both their their humility as well as their, their like passion for building something great. Uh, that's what drew me drove me over. And then foundationally, like being part of when you have a really perfect product market fit is a good thing. You know, the idea making data available for the masses, you know, in a search driven way that anybody that doesn't have to be the most sophisticated person in the world can utilize data. That just resonated with me as somebody that uses a lot of data, even to coach and develop people. Right. And so that's how I got there. And, and, and really, you know, as far as building out a team, this part, this is kind of funny. When I was talking with the, the board and Ajit and Sadish, about coming over, they asked me a question. They said, hey, can you just jot down how you would kind of build and design the go-to-market at ThoughtSpot? And if you have any names or anybody that you think would be a good fit. And I start laughing. I said, oh, yeah, sure. And I put together a team of like 40-some people, names on it, like legit 40-some 40, 40 names before I, you know, went over, obviously, and said, this is kind of what I would think, you know, here, here's some people from alliances, from biz dev, from inside field, enablement, like, you, you know, across the board, operations, uh, customer success, services, kind of build out the whole thing. They started laughing when I sent it over. The email back was priceless. It was said, hey, this is awesome. But these are, you know, these are some of world-class people. They're all game, very gamefully employed at some of the best companies. Some companies are about to go public. Awesome. But who out of these people, who do you really think we could get to start? And I said, all of them. <laughs> I said, like, you give me a checkbook and we'll make sure we get them all on board. 
And uh, they thought I was joking, but you know, virtually all of them came on board. It's something that I've thought about a bit. Fundamentally, I think it boils down to a couple things. One, those people believed in the opportunity, obviously, right? They thought for themselves. They, 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 they saw what I saw, which was a great product market fit, huge, you know, TAM. And if we could fix kind of the go-to-market thing, we, you know, maybe we could have something super special. So, so they got that. Second, there's something special about working with people when you know that you're valued as a person, that somebody has your back and you don't have to be looking over your shoulder. Or do I always have to be looking out for myself? It takes the edge off. It allows you to really kind of settle in and excel in your role and worry about just the job in front of you when you know that you're in an environment that people care about you and they have your back and they care and desire what's best for you. And so I think those people, you know, that's part of my faith, who I am. It's what I care about. It's how I want to lead. And that's if I could sum up the impact that I want to leave and make on every company I've been on, it's that people knew I cared about them. I loved them and I, and I wanted what was best for them. So I think that's one. And then two, they felt like, hey, it was an environment that we're going to learn. We're going to grow. We'll be challenged. But that it, even being challenged, like, look, I, I'm a pretty demanding person. <laughs> I want to be excellent. I want to be the best. I want to create the greatest enterprise software company of all time. But it's a matter of being challenged and respected at the same time. That is a beautiful thing. It's like why people go spend a lot of money to go, uh, you know, on personal trainers, right? And they're like, hey, they want to be great. They want, you know, they want to get fit, but they also want to be respected. You know, you're not getting torn down all the time. They want to get built up. They want to be edified. So it's a good mix of of that and building trust. So really that's what I chalk it up to. Obviously opportunity where they think they can build some wealth and make an impact on customers and, and, and partners. They, I think had a good trust feeling of like, if this culture in the culture that I would create would be one in which no politics, nobody's looking over their shoulder and one of empowering and, you know, foundation of love and, and care. And then the, the last is I think they all, want to grow. And there's also a bit around this that I would go back to what I was talking about, about my mom sitting on the front porch. And, and that's that security in knowing that like, I have no problems put like having people better than me surround me. I love it. Like if I, if I can just stack the deck and have all the best players, more power to them, they know I'll never hold them back and I'll continue to elevate them and push for them to reach you know, levels, I'd, and I'll gladly go work for them one day uh, you know, or advise for them one day. And I, I think they know that about me. And I really honestly do desire their best. And I do think that comes down to probably a bit of authenticity. They know, they know that after having worked with me for a few different spots and stops. Well, Brian, the conversation comes full circle, starts and ends with your mom, which I think is very yeah. appropriate. <laughs> How funny is that? <laughs> Thank you so much for the great stories, also for breaking down the mechanics of how you run a sales organization, but most importantly, the inspiring words. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Justin, for having me. Really appreciate it. Love uh, working with you guys at People AI. It's a huge impact on our business, too. All right. Well, thanks very much. Take care. Bye.
This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams' inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.